Thanksgiving just passed, and if you're like Katie and I, you went to multiple Thanksgiving meals, and even though all these, these meals may have been gathering to celebrate the same exact tradition, um, the family dynamics and what you ate and all that stuff may have looked very, very different. And every year, Katie's co-workers ask her about Camp Swamp Donkey, um, because during her first years of working at Jacobs High School, uh, they found out that every year we go up north to my family's uh, house and then we spend several nights out at Camp Swamp Donkey, which is the name that my dad affectionately gave to uh, our hunting cabin. And it's an experience much different than any of her coworkers have ever had. And so they always say, whenever there's new teachers, always like, were you guys going to go to Camp Swamp Donkey? Tell them about Camp Swamp Donkey. And it's just this weird thing to them. Um, because we go out and there's no running water. And so we go to the bathroom in the outhouse and we bring a jug for water and you know, cooking and uh, cleaning and stuff. And there's no electricity. And so my dad hooks up this car battery, which runs the lights. And uh, I guess the lights is the only thing. So it runs the lights. And the whole cabin is just this one room. And there's multiple bunk beds. And there's a wood stove. And there's a table in the middle. And there's like a sink and stuff like that. And so it's just one room. And so we're all just staying in that one room. And we go out there and we stay up late into the night playing our annual cribbage tournament. And her coworkers are just so intrigued like this because it's, it's much different than what we do with Katie's family. And her coworkers are intrigued because it's much different from anything that they've ever experienced. It's just like, what is this weird family tradition that you do and what is, what is this about? And if um, we all could look at our families and compare, you know, how do our, our families differ in, in what they do and how they talk um, and how they go about rituals, what rituals they decide to um, celebrate and how they decide to celebrate those rituals and our families look different in many ways. And this evening we're continuing our series called Beginning the Journey Home uh, in the book of Genesis and we're nearing the end of Jacob's life and last week we saw how he had this transformative experience. He experienced grace getting what he didn't deserve uh, up close and personal because he expected to die at seeing God's face. He expected to die at seeing his brother Esau's face and yet he walked away from both Delivered, He should have died, and yet he got what he didn't deserve. He got grace. And God, at that moment, changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which shows um, that he had kind of met this turning point in his life where things were going to be different from here on out. It was like it marks a character change. You're no longer Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster. Now you are Israel, the one who has wrestled with God and with men and prevailed. You've lived and been accepted. And this experience of grace... I was expected to have this effect on him going forward. But even though this is true, and Jacob has had this life-transforming experience, Jacob's life doesn't transform instantly, because shortly after, I mean, literally like an hour after this, or two after experiencing this grace, he deceives his brother. He says, yeah, I'll come along and I'll meet you um, at your place. And then he goes a different direction. He doesn't go and meet his brother. And then we see today how he fails to walk with God in a difficult situation. And I'm sure you can relate. Um, Jacob has this experience that he's like, man, that was life transforming. Maybe you've been to like some sort of conference or some sort of spiritual retreat, or maybe you've come on a Sunday night and been like, man, that message just spoke to me. I felt God speaking to me. And it kind of like feels like that was transformative for how I'm viewing God, how I'm viewing myself. But then it took time for it to make a real difference in your life. And God called Jacob and his family to be different than the rest of the world. When people looked at Jacob's family, looked at Abraham's family, they're supposed to see 
a difference. You know, kind of when if we compared all of our families, they would look different. And when every family of the world, every nation looks at the nation of Israel, looks at Jacob's family, it's supposed to be like, man, that family, there's something different about them. And it's intriguing and it's um, distinctive from what we do. And God uh, told Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, the first passage we read, that I chose you, Abraham, so that you, your family would keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In other words, they're supposed to walk a different path than everyone else. They're supposed to walk with God, and they're supposed to walk in a different way than other people walk. And this is the way God wanted all humanity to walk in the beginning, to walk this path of doing righteousness and justice, of walking in a loving and trusting relationship with Him. But that all got disrupted in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve said, you know what, we're going to define good and evil on our own terms. We're not going to walk in your ways of righteousness and justice. We're going to do this our own way. And so they departed from that path God wanted them on. And God's desire is that when people look at Abraham and his family, they see a family that's different than anything they've ever seen before. His desire is that others would see, this is what God originally intended. There's something good here. There's something right here. I don't maybe quite understand it, but I'm seeing something um, that's different and distinct from what I'm used to. And his desire is that all the other families of the earth would see what it looks like to walk with God in a loving and trusting relationship when they look at Abraham and his family. And this is how they would be a blessing to the world. And in the same way, God calls us to that too. As the church, as God's people today, we're called to walk in a way that's different than everyone else. When God looks at us, or when the world looks at us as God's family, so to say, there's something different there that I haven't seen elsewhere. And walking in God's ways doesn't only mean doing righteousness and justice. It also means responding rightly to unrighteousness and injustice. In other words, it means responding rightly to sin and evil in a way that shows our love and trust in God. And this is exactly how Jacob and his sons struggle in Genesis 34. And the big question this passage answers is, how do God's people fail when responding to sin? How do God's people fail when responding to sin? How do God's people fail when responding to sin? And we'll walk through the story. Um, we'll recap what we've already seen and then we'll look at some more as we answer that question. How do God's people fail when they respond to sin? So there's four main characters in this narrative in Genesis 34. And none of them are either wholly innocent or wholly evil. They're kind of like this mixed bag. First, um, Dinah... She goes where she shouldn't. Dinah goes where she shouldn't. Because remember that Jacob married two sisters. He originally wanted to marry Rachel, um, but Rachel's dad um, tricked him into marrying Leah first, saying, no, you've got to marry the older first. And Jacob um, was kind of put out by that. Um, so understandably, Rachel is his favorite, and Leah is kind of the one he got stuck with. And Dinah is the daughter of Leah, his uh, his wife that he doesn't favor as much. And in verse 1, we're told that she has this habit of going out to see the women of the land. And that phrase doesn't say much, but it insinuates that she's kind of running with the wrong crowd. And instead of being home with her family, with her people, um, with her nation, um, she's out with women, uh, the women of Canaan, the women of the land. And so Dinah goes where she shouldn't. Second, Shechem does what he shouldn't. Shechem does what he shouldn't. So Jacob, instead of going to reunite with his father um, after being gone for 20 years, staying with his uncle Laban, um, he delays. And perhaps he's afraid of seeing his father again after deceiving him and tricking him 20 years ago. For some reason, he delays. He settles down near the city where Shechem lives. And while Dinah was out with the women of Shechem's city, um, she catches the eye 
of Shechem. And instead of going through the proper course of marriage, it says we're told that Shechem seizes her, laid with her, and humiliated her. In other words, he raped her. He grabs one of Jacob's daughters, and he rapes her. And the fact that Dinah was where she shouldn't be doesn't make her any less the victim. Victim wouldn't say like, oh, well, you know, she shouldn't have been known about. No, she is the, totally the victim in this. Like this guy um, grabs her and he rapes her and takes advantage of her. But then Shechem doesn't quite act as we expect. He doesn't sleep with her and then send her on his way. But we're told that he loves her. And we may be kind of be like, well, that's a little backwards kind of love. Um, but yeah, he doesn't just be like, okay, I just want to like sleep with you and send you on. He's like, well, I want to marry her. And he tells his dad, I want to, I want to marry this um, girl. So go, please go talk to Jacob to get this girl for my wife. And he's failed to control himself. Um, and now he's seeking marriage. He's doing it backwards. Um, third, Jacob doesn't do what he should. Dinah goes where she shouldn't. Shechem doesn't do what he, sh Shechem does what he shouldn't. And Jacob doesn't do what he should. Jacob hears that his daughter's been raped, but he holds his peace. Shechem's father, Hamor, comes to ask for Dinah in marriage, and Jacob says nothing. And it seems that Jacob isn't super concerned about Dinah being raped, possibly because we're told those details. Remember, Genesis doesn't waste, doesn't tell his details for no reason. It tells us Dinah, the daughter of Leah, and then we're supposed to remember, oh yeah, Leah is kind of the wife that Jacob's like, I got stuck with her. I don't favor her. She's not my favorite. And so maybe he's kind of like, well, Dinah got raped. Ah, well, you know, I'm not really that into Leah or his, her mom anyway. And so um, he kind of doesn't say anything. He doesn't do what he should. And lastly, we come to Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons do more than they should. Jacob's sons do more than they should. Jacob doesn't do what he should. But Jacob's sons do more than they should. And when they hear about what happened, they're angry, probably both at their dad for him doing nothing, and also at Shechem for what he has done. And Hamor, Shechem's dad, proposes that their people intermarry. Okay, hey, let's just, let's just combine. Let's be one per people. Let's intermarry. Let's trade. Let's live in this land together. This will be good. And then Shechem speaks up, says to Jacob and his sons, he says, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I'll give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I'll give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And since their father isn't doing anything, Jacob's sons take the matter into their own, hand, own hands. They've learned a thing or two from their dad about deception, if you know anything about Jacob. He loves to deceive people. And so they answer Shechem deceitfully. They say, well, we can't intermarry with you because you aren't circumcised. So if you guys get circumcised, then we'll intermarry with you. So let's hear... That takes us to the end of where we read. Let's hear Shechem and Hamor's response in verse 18, starting in verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate 
of his city. So they present the arrangement to their people, but they leave out how this is going to personally benefit them. You know, they're kind of, they're you know, only telling part of the truth, like, hey, this is going to be great for everybody. They don't say, oh, by the way, Shechem slept with one of their daughters uh, and now he wants to marry her. They leave all that all out. This, this is economic advantage to us. Like, look, if they, uh, if we become one people with them, won't all their stuff be ours? And so they, the people are like, oh, sounds pretty good. And they agree to circumcision. And here's where the deceit of Jacob's sons comes in. Look at verse, it says 25 through 29. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and, all, and their wives, and all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And so while Shechem and his people are still laying on the couch, icing themselves, and taking Advil for, from the effects of their circumcision, Simeon and Levi, with, probably with some of their servants, servants, enter the city and they kill all the males, and then here we learn that Dinah's actually, you, know, you would have thought maybe Dinah returned home and now all the, every, the whole family's sitting there and they're talking about this marriage proposal. But no, you find out when they're talking about the marriage proposal, Dinah's still back at the house of the guy that raped her. And so it's like kind of unfair marriage negotiations. If they say no, um, what's Shechem going to do with Dinah? Is he going to just hold her captive? Is there, you know, her life at risk? And so they're uh, negotiating under um, poor conditions. But... After the males have been killed, all the sons of Jacob, not just Simeon and Levi, plunder the city, taking their valued possessions and taking their children and taking their women captive. And their actions certainly don't look or feel like justice and righteousness. And Jacob's sons do far more than they should. They answer deceitfully. Then they use circumcision, a sign of God's special relationship with them, a sign that they're supposed to be walking with God and showing the world a different way. They use that to weaken their enemies so they can go attack them. And then they murdered not only Shechem, who was the one that committed the wrong against their sister, but Shechem's father and all the males of, in their city. And then they plundered it and took the women and children as captives. And Jacob's family was enriched that day, but the wealth they gained was stained with blood. And we see even more of Jacob's passivity in the final two verses. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's the end of the chapter. And is Jacob concerned about the immoral, wicked actions of his sons? No, he's worried oh, I'm really mad you did that because now what if they attack me? He's worried about the harm that might come to him, not saying, Simeon, Levi, uh, what are you doing? Look at all this stuff you did. And, you, you, and my other sons, why'd you go and grab all their things? He's not upset about that. He's upset about how it might hurt him. And then Simeon and Levi paint the situation in blunt terms. They say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And they see Shechem slept with our sister, and now he's coming to us and trying to pay us for it. He's trying to give us a bride price and give us a gift so we're not mad at them. And they're like, this feels like he's treating her sister like a prostitute. And they find the whole thing appalling. And this whole story shows that Jacob's family 
is a mess. His sons of all the bad traits of their father, and then some. They take advantage of someone's eagerness. They deceive. They trick. They don't take the things of God seriously. But even more, they're vengeful. They murder and they plunder. And as we read, as we read this, we may wonder, well, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? Uh, it doesn't even mention God once. And we may wonder even more specifically, what is this doing in the book of Genesis? So if you're reading along, just reading the whole book of Genesis, it almost feels like this little detour. It's like Jacob returns home, then all of a sudden, ooh, what is up with this episode? But remember, we talked about this long ago when we started Genesis. The book of Genesis was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The original audience was the, the nation of Israel. And Genesis is part of, the, part of their or, origin story. God chose them to be a blessing to the nations. He was going to bless them so they could be a blessing. And their nation grew out of Abraham and his family. And Jacob is Abraham's grandson, who's renamed Israel. The whole nation gets named after this guy, Jacob, who's extremely passive in this situation when he's supposed to be doing righteousness and justice. And his 12 sons, who kill all these people, um, become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel are named after these guys, of Simeon and Levi are two of the names of the tribes. And the author of this book is a man named Moses. He was chosen by God to be the leader of his people during a time um, when, God, when they're in slavery. And God said, I want to lead them out of slavery through you, Moses. But then when God leads them out, he doesn't just say, okay, you're free, do whatever you want, you know, you're welcome, Go, just kind of do your thing now. But his desire is, I want you to worship me and walk in my ways. I want you to do righteousness and justice. He wants this nation that grew out of Abraham's family to be different than all the other nations, than all the other families of the earth. And the book of Genesis is part of Israel's foundation documents, and chapter 34 is part of those foundation documents. And so what does this say to this people who just got led out of slavery, they're free for the first time in 400 years, what is this saying to them? And first, there's two, there's two things it's saying. One, it's an explanation. One, it's a warning. As an explanation... It seems, you know, doesn't really make much difference to us, but as an explanation, it, uh, it's an explanation for why Simeon and Levi are not the tribe that Israel's kings come from. We'll learn later at the end of Jacob's life. He says, Simeon and Levi, you aren't going to be the heads of this family. You aren't, your tribe isn't going to produce the kings because you guys are vengeful. You're angry. You cannot leave this nation. And second, it's a warning. This warning applies to us. It's a warning about how the nation, how God's people can go wrong and abandon their calling from God. Because they can look at it and be like, how did things go wrong in that? You look at it and you see, is this a reflection of how we're acting right now? The nation could later ask that. We can ask that too. And so our big question is, how did God's people fail when responding to sin? And so first, like Jacob, we can do nothing. We can fail to respond to sin rightly by doing nothing. Like Jacob, we can do nothing. We can ignore it, sweep it under the rug. We can tell people, oh, it's okay that you did that. It's okay that you're sinful, that you did wrong. We don't want to rock the boat or make somebody upset. So that's one way we can respond um, wrongly to sin. Secondly, on the other side, like Jacob's sons, we can do too much. Like Jacob's sons, we can do too much. We can take revenge. We can take justice into our own hands. Instead of walking in justice and righteousness, um, we can just ignore what God would want and do it our own way. And Jacob critiques his sons, and Jacob's sons critique Jacob. And there's truth in both their critiques. After his sons take vengeance, Jacob says, You've made me a stink to the inhabitants of the land. 
And we, when we take vengeance on people for the wrong they've done to us, we become a stink to the people around us. People look at us and say, don't you say you believe in Jesus? Don't you say you follow God? And people say, you're not acting any different than anybody else. How can you tell us that you believe in this sort of God? And we become a stink to people when we're taking vengeance, like the world takes vengeance. And Jacob's sons are rightly upset by their father's passivity and ask, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And they're appalled at their father's lack of action in the wake of their, their sister and his daughter being raped. They're, and they're right to be critical of his response. Because, but that doesn't make them right in how they have responded. And the problem with both of them is neither consult God. The name of God is not mentioned once in this whole chapter. And because of, they don't consult God, they do not show the Shechemites the way of the Lord. And so they fail to be a blessing to them. And so we come to today... And as God's family, we're called to show a different way of responding to sin and evil. And this passage speaks to the people of Israel who have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. And now it speaks to us as people who have been freed from slavery to sin and who now are called to walk in a way that's different from the world. And so what does it say to us who are to live as citizens of, of Jesus' kingdom in this world? How do we live as citizens of that kingdom while at the same time inhabiting this world. And so here's a truth to remember, that God responds to sin with grace. God responds to sin with grace. And grace is neither passive nor vengeful. It's not passive because grace does something. Grace deals with our sin. Grace pays the penalty of our sin. Grace gives us the power and the strength to live free of that sin, to know God giving us His Holy Spirit frees us from it so we don't have to continue doing it. Grace leads us out um, from continuing to sin and grace gives us the power to stop sinning. But on the other side, God will one day judge sinners and execute punishment. And that's the fate for all those who reject his grace. God says, don't take vengeance because vengeance is mine. I'm going to deal with people's sins. I'm going to deal with the punishment. I'm going to deal with the condemnation. Um, but in this current time period, um, God is offering salvation. He's saying, this is the, the reality of your condition. And I'm offering grace. I'm offering something you don't deserve. I'm offering you a way out, a way to have that sin paid for um, by what I've done for you through Jesus. When it comes to responding to sin in others, we often fail to respond with grace. And we often do nothing or we take vengeance. And so I just want us to interact a little bit about this question. What keeps us from doing something when we see wrong? What, what, when you see wrong, somebody do something wrong, um, what keeps us from doing something about that? Like what holds us back? And let's just brainstorm that for a minute. If you see something wrong, what keeps us from doing something, saying something? Scared of them. Scared? <clears throat> Maybe we could write, what are some things we're scared that will happen? Or some things that we're scared that they'll um, do? What are we scared of? Maybe like rejection, loss of a friendship or relationship. Rejection. I might not like you. Hey, who are you to tell me I did something wrong or yeah, loss of relationship? We don't know the whole story. Fear that we're missing information and therefore we won't be able to address scared of missing information. 
we're scared of? We see anger. something wrong? What are we scared of? Like anger towards us. Did we say something? Which is kind of rejection, but just being scared of anger. Scared of their anger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm often scared that, yeah, I mean, kind of all this stuff goes under similar categories, or some of it does. I'm often scared that um, they'll respond poorly, just in general. That would be anger or rejection. When we see something wrong, are there any other reasons besides fear that we wouldn't do something, that we would do nothing like Jacob did? We don't have enough pants. We don't have enough what? Pants. Like courage. Oh! (laughs) What's what's, what's that? What's the name for that? Like um, guts or courage? We lack lack courage. We lack pants. I like it better that way. Can you put yeah. your pants up there and stuff? Yes. Black pants. We're pantless. We're lots of space. Yeah, we lack courage. Yeah, we lack courage. We're scared. And then we lack the courage to do something in the face of the what we're scared of. I think sometimes like I lack the courage to rely on the spirit to speak through me. Like who am I to be able to say the right words kind of thing to express what I want to say with love. So you're maybe scared you won't say it with love mm-hmm. or say the right thing? Yeah. It seems like uh, fear is a big... Interesting, interesting thing about courage is that it doesn't mean the absence of fear. It means doing something despite the fear. Let's pause that there, but let's, and now let's turn, which four G's um, would help us in a situation where we're like, I see something wrong, I'm feeling scared uh, about doing something or saying something, which four G's would help us in that, in situations like that? The first one works, so again, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have to be, we're scared. All these things are lack of control. I can't control any of that. Um, But we don't have to be in control. God's great. Similar to that, the idea of God is glorious. So we don't have to be afraid if there is going to be a lost relationship. But Mm -hmm. God is still His opinion of us matters the most. So Mm -hmm. I fear God more than I fear. Yeah, fearing God more than yeah. Yeah, well, the antidote to fearing other people is fearing God more. Not that He's gonna, you know, squish us or something, but having this proper honor and respect and reverence for Him. He's bigger than them. Yeah. There's another one. I'll hang the. I won't hang it up. But we're gonna move on now to um, when someone has wronged us. What are ways we might take? Revenge, because that might seem like, well, I don't take revenge on people, but are, what are ways we try to get them back? What are ways we might take revenge? We'll put this in red. People in general. Or... People in general, or, or you, or we don't have, to, don't have to say I, you can if you want. How do, what are ways we take revenge on people? Like slander. Slander, Speaking speak bad about them. Slander and gossip. 
cutting them off, like stopping relationships with them or silent treatment. Stop relationship. Silent treatment. Yeah. Or avoidance. It's kind of the same passive. Avoid. Yeah, like bitterness and long term passive aggressive uh, treatment. <laughs> bitterness. Yeah, all these are ways that in some way they're going to pay for what they've done. That's what revenge is. I'm going to make them pay for it. And then flipping to the four G's, which four G's would help us to not respond with vengeance um, in those situations where we're like, I've s somebody has wronged me, or I've seen them do wrong to somebody else. Like, how do we not respond with vengeance? Which four G's would help? How do we respond with grace? God's gracious, so God's our example. God's an example, yeah, give them grace. God is good, like finding our satisfaction in God and not in like making more of ourselves or trying to make others feel bad and therefore mm. making ourselves feel better. Mm. Yeah, like oh that it does doesn't it feel good like to gossip sometimes? Like, yeah, I'm gonna talk bad about this person. Like it's like we're, that's why we're drawn to it. It's like, yeah, I wanna talk bad about other people. I wanna get the dirt on somebody else and it's like, no, I don't need to be satisfied like that by that. God's good and actually it's self destructive to do this. I think God is good helps me to believe he wants good things for them. And those are not good things for them. And so how do I give them good things? How do I help lead them to God? <coughs> Any others? To final ones? Well, it's God's family. We need to respond to sin rightly if we're to be different from the world. We need to respond to um, sin out there. Um, but I think more importantly, it all starts at home. It starts with us. It starts within the family of God, learning how to respond to sin um, rightly in one another. And it's like, you know, I was thinking about this. I was like, man, there's a whole lot of, like, issues today that we could talk about. Um, but really, I find when we start looking out there, it's really puts us in the self-righteous position, like, yeah, all the problems are out here, but no, we need to know what grace, responding to sin and having grace here means, and that's the only way we'll respond rightly out there. Um, we need to neither be passive um, nor vengeful toward one another, but gracious. And there's a story that struck me. Um, it's very sad. In January of this year, I'm sure many of you heard, the, the team doctor for the National um, USA Gymnastics team um, Larry Nasser was convicted and sentenced as a serial child molester. He's supposed to be the doctor for this gymnastic team, but as he's supposed to be caring for them medically, um, he's abusing these women. And more than 150 women and girls spoke of his sexual misconduct at his trial. And the last person to speak was this girl named Rachel Denhollander. And she was actually the first woman to publicly accuse him of his sexual misconduct. And what she describes in her statement is quite long. You can find the whole thing online. Um, it's heartbreaking. Um, and after addressing the judge for what she, why he thought she, he should be sentenced to the maximum, 
Um, and after speaking to Michigan State University, then she addressed Nassar, her, uh, her abuser. Um, and here's just part of what she said. So she's looking this person in face to face uh, that has uh, committed a horrible sin against her. And this is decently lengthy, but it uh, gives us the point. So here's what she says to him. You've become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others, and the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it cost me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen this court, this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, then you have damaged hundreds. In the Bible you you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. And so she looks in the face of this person who has abused her over and over again over the course of years, and she responds to his sin much like you see Jesus responding to people's sin in the Gospels. And we can learn something from her. And so you know, three ways of how she responds that we can respond. First, she doesn't minimize sin. She doesn't minimize sin. She calls it for what it is. She doesn't sugarcoat it. She doesn't say it's okay. She doesn't brush over it. She makes clear how bad sin is and how bad the consequences are. She doesn't minimize sin. But secondly, and uh, just as important, she doesn't minimize grace either. She doesn't minimize grace. Despite the terrible things Nassar did, not only to others, but to her personally and repeatedly, she holds out the possibility of forgiveness both from her and from God. And she says this, we heard it. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. The gospel of Christ extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And unless we're, each of us is willing to admit, yeah, that's the reality for me too, that God has extended grace and hope and mercy to me, where none should be found, um, will never understand grace. Third, she shows compassion, not vengeance. She shows compassion, not vengeance. Because she prays he would experience guilt, so that he can experience repentance and forgiveness. You have to experience guilt before you'll want forgiveness. And she later goes on in her testimony to tell him, why. Well, hey, 
I look at your life and I, I pity you. I have compassion on you because you're experiencing nothing of what true love is. You're experiencing nothing of what true joy is because you've gone into this pit of darkness um, and, and selfishness and it's ultimately self-destructive. And so she has this compassion on him and she wants more for him. And as we talked about several weeks ago, um, we need to be safe people, inviting others to safety when we confront sin in one another. And oh, we'll get another marker. We, uh, this acronym, SAFE. If you can remember that this is true of you, if you, when we trust in Jesus, this is true of us. SAFE, so S, secure in Christ. A, accepted by God. F, forgiven of everything. E, embraced in love. We deserve the same thing that this gentleman, Nassar, deserved. That we deserve the wrath, condemnation, the just penalty for our sins. And we may say, well, I've never done anything like him. Um, and I once, uh, in, in college, we used to use the illustration like, okay, sure, maybe some of us are better than others, but if we all lined up at the Grand Canyon, some of us might be better jumpers, but nobody's going to be able to jump the Grand Canyon. We're all going to fall and die. And like she said, no good deeds, um, no matter how many, can erase the sins that we've done, the wrong we've done to other people, the selfishness um, we've committed against God and others. But if we trust in Jesus, we can be secure in our relationship with God, but because of Jesus, we can be accepted by God. We can be forgiven of everything and embraced in love, even though we don't deserve any of it. And we need to know that this is true of us. Um, if we're ever going to confront sin in other people, we need to stand in the safety of God's grace before we can call others there. And the good news of Jesus is that despite all our sin, despite all our failures, despite all our selfishness, we are safe with God. We are ex secure, accepted, forgiven, and embraced. And so then we become messengers of that good news when despite all the other person's sin and failures and selfishness, we can express to them the safety of grace to them and invite them into that safety without minimizing sin, um, without sugarcoating it. We don't have to minimize it and make it, you know, it's okay, it's okay to do that. I know you were having a bad day. I know this, this, and this, and this. We don't have to make excuses for them. It's like, no, you did this. And we can invite people into the safety of grace. With Jacob and his sons, we too so often find that Change is hard, slow, and sometimes feels non-existent. Um, Jacob has this experience that you'd expect to be life-changing. Next chapter, wow, not super life-changing. And we find in our lives that change and transformation, even after we've heard the gospel, even if we've had a transformative experience, um, takes time. And we might hear the truth about God from a sermon and be like, man, that really hit me, that encouraged me, I love that. And call, hear the call, I'm going to be different, and I'm going to walk in the power of the Spirit. I'm going to walk with God and enjoy His grace. We close our Bibles and we walk out, and suddenly everything feels the same as it did before uh, when Monday comes. Or maybe even sooner than that, um, as soon as we get in our cars and start driving down the road, we're like, man, it doesn't feel that much different. It seems like everything we just heard is just in the rearview mirror, and maybe next Sunday it'll make a change. That's why we need to be safe people to one another, because change doesn't come instantly. 
We need to be accepting and forgiving and, and embracing of one another, even as we're struggling um, with maybe deep and repeated and habitual sin that we're trying to get out of, but are having trouble doing it. We need grace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness to one another. And we need to call sin out in each other without minimizing the sin, how bad it is, but also without minimizing grace. Because if we minimize grace, we're not going to invite people to this, where we're going to condemn people and condemn one another and make us feel um, like we have this big weight of guilt on ourselves that we can't get rid of. And grace sounds like this. I love you and want what's best for you. I love you and want what's best for you. And that's why I'm talking to you about this. Because even though you've sinned against me, I want you to acknowledge it, own it, um, and repent and experience forgiveness and experience grace. And I want that for you. That's what we say to one another. That's what grace sounds like. And, and, and the thing is, we, we don't just do worship gatherings like this and hear sermons because it's not enough. It's not enough to have life transformation. That's why we do gospel communities and gospel fluency groups because in those we get to apply grace uh, to the sin in our lives, apply grace to one another. And as we become, be safe people here and in those situations, and we call this that safety, uh, over time we can experience life transformation just as God calls us to. Let's pray. Father, thanks for um, this passage which may challenge us and may make us see uh, something that maybe we don't want to hear in the Bible, but it's there showing us the power of grace to cover even Jacob who, who calls you uh, his shepherd later in his life. And he doesn't deserve to have you as a shepherd guiding him and always being faithful to him, and yet you are because of grace. And so would you help us to live in light of grace? Would you help us to be safe people to one another and to those that we encounter in the world, in our workplaces, in our families? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.